You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by HuntStand. HuntStand is the number one hunting app in the country, and at only $29.99, HuntStand offers a ton of functionality for hunters all over the country. Whether you own your own property or strictly hunt public, you can choose from over a dozen base maps, view property ownership information, 3D mapping, local weather, log your sightings and harvest, as well as use their trail cam management software, and print maps from your hunt areas. Download it today at the Apple App Store or Google Play. Hunt Stand. Upgrade your arsenal. You're listening to the Average Conservationist Podcast, brought to you by Go Hunt and in partner with 2% for Conservation. Sign up today to become an insider at GoHunt.com. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitments as popular brands like Sitka, First Light, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their community for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. going on everyone happy thursday welcome back to another episode of the average conservationist podcast and i'm your host marcus ewing to round out conservation month uh today we are joined by keith belford and keith <clears throat> is with the wild sheep foundation and really keith and i uh like some of the uh previous episodes with some uh very species specific orgs uh we get to talk about all things sheep today uh, and sheep are you know, one of those big game animals that I'm, you know, certainly aware of. I do not have a lot of knowledge on them other than, you know, what I've kind of, uh, seen through social media, through the internet. Um, no, I've never really had any discussions with people about them. So to kind of pick Keith's brain and really understand, uh, what the Wild Sheep Foundation is doing, uh, the history of the organization, how it all came to be, um, you know, how they're uh, raising money or helping raise money and then funneling that 
to uh, research projects, uh, you know, all sorts of different things to help uh, potentially reintroduce uh, a sheep population into new areas or perhaps an area where they once existed. Uh, some of the troubles uh, that they face along that way, uh, the different types of uh, the four kind of subspecies of sheep, where they're located. Uh, really, it's um, it's just jam-packed with a, a ton of great information. Keith offers a lot of insight. Uh, we also get to talk a little bit about Keith and, and, Cal, and how he ended up uh, with the Wild Sheep Foundation um, and you know how he decided to make a career uh, out of the world of conservation. So really a uh, very interesting episode. I really enjoyed talking with Keith and you know when we got done I felt like I had really kind of learned a lot and had a little bit better understanding for you know not only the sheep but the organization as well. So episode 75 to wrap up conservation month here on the podcast. Uh, Keith Belford with the Wild Sheep Foundation. Enjoy. All right. I'd like to welcome in today from the Wild Sheep Foundation, Keith Belford. Keith, thanks for taking some time. How are you today? I'm good, Marcus. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, no problem. I mean, so this month on the podcast has been Conservation Month. And in the past, typically we're talking to um, businesses or individuals who are 2% certified. I mean, that's how we were, you know, how the introduction was made to you and I. But what's been cool for me is being able to talk to to some of these organizations that, while I'm certainly familiar with, uh, they they seem to be a bit more, uh, well, the species, I guess, these species-specific orgs are, are definitely more uh, in the West uh, and maybe up in Canada and everything. So it's, uh, it's cool for me to be able to, uh, you know, certainly learn more about, you know, a lot of these species and animals that, while I know of, I don't know a ton about. So I'm, I'm certainly excited to hear more about the organization. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I'm happy to uh, happy to share and story tell. Yeah, all right. There's, so, there's a story. <laughs> so, first off, Keith, uh, what is your position uh, with the Wild Sheep Foundation? How long have you been over there? I am, uh, my business card reads Director of Marketing Communications, but uh, if you spend any time with nonprofits, it's an all hands on deck. Everybody's involved in, in lots of things. We run a pretty small and lean staff here, uh, primarily to make sure that the money we raise is, is going to the resource and, you know, trying to keep administrative costs as in check as possible. And I've been here coming up. It'll be two years, uh, November 1st. Okay. So, how was it or when was it that, you know, you personally decided to, I guess, make a career out of conservation in the outdoors? That's a that's a real interesting question. Um, this goes back to early 2000. Um, I had an opportunity to assume the same position for the Boone and Crockett Club which is headquartered in Montana here as well, albeit three hours north. We're in Bozeman, Montana, Budapest in Missoula, Montana. And that that got me deep into the indoctrination of conservation organizations and conservation work. Prior to that, I was in working in the outdoor industry, but primarily in uh, media, media sales, PR, um, magazine publishing, that sort of thing. Now, are you originally from uh, Montana there? 
I am not. I am originally, I grew up in Ohio. I'm a corn fed and uh, <laughs> went to school, <laughs> went to school in Oregon, um, had, you know, classic deal. Parents go, what do you want to be when you grow up? Well, I love hunting and fishing and being outside. I guess I'll be in forestry. And uh, went to school at Oregon State University for their forestry program. And uh, didn't graduate in forestry, ended up with a minor in forestry. Uh, at the time I was in school and, and getting close to graduating, unfortunately, the, the wheels were coming off of the forest industry and there just wasn't looking like there was going to be many jobs available. So I switched to business marketing. And uh, once I hit the West Coast, that was it for me. Um, I pretty much said, this is home, and I stayed out here after I graduated, worked in the uh, outside the Seattle area for 20-odd years uh, before moving to Missoula, Montana to assume that role with Boone and Crockett. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, you've certainly seen some things then going from uh, Ohio out to um, to Oregon and then you know into Montana, but you've certainly seen... Uh, some of the best things that this country has to offer. That's that's for sure. I've, I've been truly blessed. Um, you know, I loved Ohio. It was a, a great place to grow up. Um, but like I said, once once I saw the mountains and the hills and the streams uh, on the Pacific Northwest, I went, nah, okay, I'm here. <laughs> I- yeah, and, and, I mean, I'm from Michigan, uh, born and raised, still reside here. That's what I always tell people. I'm like, Michigan's, uh, it's a great place to grow up. It's actually a great state. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, we're just north of you guys there, but I haven't been able to make the jump, right? To make the move and be able to be like, yeah, it's a great place to grow up, but this is where I want to be. I mean, I I certainly, you know, love the West. I love the mountains, uh, you know, really everything that comes along with it. So when someone actually makes that jump, uh, I'm a little bit envious, I'll be honest. Well, Michigan, like like Ohio, has got a very strong outdoor tradition. Uh, that's where I, you know, got my appetite for hunting and fishing, as, as a lot of people do. And uh, yeah, like I said, I, I'm one of those that got blessed to be able to, uh, you know, make it out west and, um, you know, have a career, raise a family, and all that good stuff. Yeah. So what was it or how was it that you were, you know, really introduced to the outdoors as, as you were a kid? I mean, I'd imagine it's like a lot of Midwest kids, right? It's just kind of a uh, part of the lifestyle. It's your grandpa did it, your dad did it, or your uncle did it, whatever the case is. I mean, what did that look like for you? Yeah, you just, you hit the nail on the head. <laughs> uh, yeah. um, he was a big bird hunter. He he just loved to hunt pheasants, and he did that ever since he was a little kid. And you know, I'm story similar probably to a lot of your your listeners. Um, you know, outdoor life, field and stream, sports and field magazine came to the mailbox, and you know, it was like Christmas. And you know, I consumed all of that and. You know, I followed my dad into the fields uh, ever since I was a little kid. Couldn't even see, you know, over the weeds, uh, but could hear, hear the bird flush and hear the shot. And if I saw feathers floating down, that mean he got it. And and I was hooked. Um, 
as soon as I was old enough to, uh, you know, go in the field myself with a single shot 20 gauge, I was out there. Yeah. Simpler times, that's for sure. But uh, it's amazing the the memories uh, that are kind of ingrained in you from those, you know, those early hunts, those early experiences uh, in the field when you don't really know what you're doing, right? You're just taking orders. You're taking direction from your dad or whatever the case is. And it, it's it's funny how as you get older, uh, I'm sure there was a, a situation where you were probably doing the same thing with your kids. Yeah, exactly. It was, you know, there's a, you know, a wisdom transfer. You know, we're going to talk a lot here on this call about conservation. I didn't know anything about conservation when I was a kid. That wasn't uh, something my dad was well versed in. Um, he did tell me stories of the days when he was growing up. And if you saw a deer track in Ohio, you, you called the neighbors to come over and look at it. I mean, there just wasn't any deer. Um, but he, you know, he instilled in me an ethic, you know, this is how we do things. This is how we don't do things. Uh, those were very important teachings. Um, and then obviously that, that transferred as I got into big game hunting, uh, transferred into fishing, um, just an overall outdoor ethic. Uh, I credit that to him and, you know, he was taught by his uncle, um, his dad wasn't a hunter, but his uh, dad's brother was, and probably a similar story for a lot of your listeners. That's that's how we get indoctrinated into this outdoor lifestyle. The, the conservation stuff came later. Yeah, and it's you know it's interesting that you know while growing up uh, in the outdoors and with my experiences, um, like. The word conservation never really came up, right? Kind of probably similar to, to your experience. But I think the the lessons, uh, the messaging that, you know, the things like the ethic, like you just said, that my dad was trying to pass on to me. I think that, you know, for that generation, that was kind of their way of, um, I guess, passing along, you know, kind of what conservation was or what it meant to them or, you know, how they learned. Whereas now with, you know, social media and all this other stuff, there's, it's a lot um, kind of more accessible. Uh, the conversation is a lot broader um, than obviously with the development of all these, you know, wonderful conservation organizations. Um, you can actually kind of put a, a, a name with conservation or, or specific actions with conservation as well. Yeah, that's, that's all true. Um, you know, my dad's teaching was, you know, a respect for the game, respect for wildlife, respect for private land. That was it. Um, you know, he didn't go into, you know, the history of conservation and, and all that. That it wasn't in his vernacular, but that same ethic, um, it did transfer to a conservation ethic once I got older and gotten to see, okay, there, there is a bigger picture here. There is a structure to um, hunting, if you will, and it is a critical um, mechanism for conservation. And uh, th those pieces started to fit together as I got older and then certainly um, as I got involved in the outdoor industry and, and started to get somewhat indoctrinated to 
um, conservation organizations, the history of conservation, that certainly all accelerated with my time with Boone and Crockett. And, uh, you know, things started to come full circle. They started to make sense uh, when I got back, reflecting back on some of my dad's uh, teachings about a respect for wildlife and a respect for the game. Uh, he was teaching a conservation ethic back then. We just didn't have a name for it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a great way to put it. And like you said, with, you know, as you got further along in your outdoor journey and you started reflecting back, you know, kind of once you have all the pieces to the puzzle, uh, the picture becomes a lot more clear, uh, as far as, you know, those things that you knew, uh, at an early age and how it all fit together in, you know, the, the landscape of conservation as a whole. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, uh, you know, I look back on all of that time spent with him as he's unfortunately passed now, but, um, you know, that, that shaped who I am today. Um, no, no denying. And, uh, I'm glad that I had the opportunity and the journey that, that I had and now being able to, you know, directly work in the conservation arena. Um, it's, it's extremely fulfilling because, you know, the actions and the things that we do here at Wild Sheep, uh, those are, there's tangible results there that you can see and you kind of, you know, yeah, I go to work every day and you know, turn on my computer and, you know, grind away. Um, but I'm, I'm constantly reminded that, you know, we are doing good work here and there are good things happening and there is good outcome. And as, as most of your listeners, I would assume would attest, you know, all of my best friends, all of my acquaintances, my circle are all hunters and fishermen and they're salt of the earth, dyed in the wool, good folks and, and they care. And that's, that's, that's just cool. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. And that's certainly one of the things that I've found uh, with having the, the, the privilege and the opportunity to talk to, uh, you know, not only like 2% businesses, but, uh, you know, various conservation organizations as well, is how after, you know, speaking to someone for 45 minutes, an hour, whatever the case is, um, the, the, the amount of similarities uh, that I often find between myself and the person that I'm speaking to, whether it's their upbringing, uh, you know, how they were introduced to the outdoors, you know, what the outdoors means to them, what it's been able to kind of provide them, uh, as far as kind of a structure in life, um, you know, different virtues and things like that. And yeah, I think, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. There's the industry as a whole is just, you know, top to bottom, a lot of people, uh, like that. And it's a, it's a really cool, um, I guess, group to be a part of, you know? It, it really is. And, and, uh, you know, you touched on something there that I, I think is, is important and sometimes gets overlooked, but, you know, an outdoor lifestyle hunting in particular, uh, you know, it, it teaches, um, you know, self-determination, self-reliance, uh, self-control, um, you know, those, those character traits that, uh, you know, we hope that our kids would get from school, from playing sports, uh, you know, those 
opportunities are certainly there. Um, you know, problem solving skills, you know, these are our, our life skills that unfortunately aren't available to a lot of young people um, unless they have that kind of access. Uh, and so what, what I end up seeing is there's such a, a level of commonality and, and you are probably in a unique position talking to all these folks and, and seeing that there's the same common threads, same stories, same outcomes. Um, that is, uh, you know, that builds community. Uh, that's a, a very bonding, very strong, uh, aspect to the hunting community. Um, like I said, my, my closest friends, lifelong friends, they all hunt and fish. Yeah. And I think there's, I mean, anyone who's hunted for any amount of time knows that, you know, more often than not, you are unsuccessful, uh, in whatever animal you're pursuing. Uh, you know, a lot of time, I mean, even if you just, you know, look at fishing, you know, you could go out and, you know, have a great day on the river and, you know, you catch 10 trout but you probably took 400 casts, right? So just, you know, the percentages, percentages are always very low in terms of uh, kind of being successful or, or harvesting an animal. So there's a certain um, connection that we all kind of have that we gain through the suffering, I guess, you know, through the, the experiences that we have. And, you know, you meet a hunter and it doesn't take long to start stop swapping stories. And a lot of them, are about you know some of the misfortunes that uh, that we've all had in the field. Yeah, there's there's no doubt that the, the the challenge is is you know one of the you know motivating or endearing factors of, of hunting. They no guarantees nature of it. Uh, like I said, the problem solving, overcoming adversity. Um, you know, there's you don't have to have the ultimate prize to have successfully hunted. And I think you're probably hearing from a lot of your interviewees that, you know, the experience, the memory, um, the journey is what rises to the top, you know, win, lose or draw. And yeah, we're not always successful um, in finding the game that we're after or, you know, a specific uh, animal or trophy, if you want to call it that, um, that that's okay. Um, you know, hunting is greater than the sum of its parts and, you know, it's personal, it's complex. Uh, it, it just, it's just rich with benefits and not all of them, you know, put meat in the freezer, so to speak. Yeah, no, that's, <clears throat> that's very well put. So, want to shift gears a little bit here and obviously um, talk about the Wild Sheep Foundation. So, Keith, if you can, can you give me a, a little bit of a history uh, on the Wild Sheep Foundation and, and, you know, kind of really what their mission is? Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, you know, long story long, um, <laughs> hopefully hopefully, a lot of your listeners have, have some indoctrination to the, the history of conservation in, in North America uh, you know, it was, it was created out of crisis. It was created, uh, out of struggle. You know, we lost a lot of our game populations in particular, but a lot of wildlife, um, 
you know, whether it was manifest destiny, commercial market hunting, uh, you know, over harvest of recreational hunters, uh, habitat loss, irresponsible land use practices. Anyway, a lot of our species were in dire straits at, at the turn of the century and uh, in the early 1900s. Some folks, sportsmen, um, you know, Theodore Roosevelt, Gifford Pinchot, George Bird Grinnell, Aldo Leopold, there's, there's a pretty long list of those those sportsmen that got together and said, we, we got to come up with a better way. Um, we've got to um, establish a better human natural resource relationship than the one we've got going, or we're going to completely lose these species. And fortunately, uh, that conservation movement got started, like we talked about from sportsmen. They were the first to realize that we had to change our ways, and that started this whole movement. Um, and how that connects to the wild sheep is in the early days, we were very successful in recovering most of our big game species that were, you know, teetering on the brink of extinction. We brought back white-tailed deer, elk, antelope, moose, um, you know, our bears, our cats, all of that stuff was making a, a pretty strong recovery. Uh, unfortunately, wild sheep was one that was lagging very far behind. Um, and there was a reason for that. Sheep were, they're not widely as distributed as, you know, our deer and elk species. Um, they inhabit, um, you know, specific habitats. And basically there was no way for a funding mechanism for wild sheep because there was just so few of them. Um, obviously you had a funding model that was working, uh, sportsmen were buying hunting licenses and deer tags and elk tags and duck stamps and, and all of that. And that, that created an infusion of funding to help with recovery. Um, that helped fund the, the state wildlife agencies and their work and habitat work and transplanting and all that stuff. There was none of that available for sheep. There was just too few. Um, there wasn't many sheep tags available. Hunting opportunity was very low. Um, it was kind of out of sight, out of mind. And in 1977, uh, a handful of some of the brightest minds in the, in the business, whether it be hunting or conservation, got together, ironically, in, in Missoula, Montana, and said, you know, we need to do something for our sheep. Um, we've, we've got a successful model on recovering species, but there's just no funding to do the same for wild sheep, and that, that birthed the concept of forming the Wild Sheep Foundation. Back then, it was known as the Foundation for North American Wild Sheep. And its, it's purpose, uh, still to this day, is putting and keeping wild sheep on the mountain. And we do that through essentially raising funds to direct back to state agencies so they have dedicated monies at their disposal to focus on wild sheep restoration and, and conservation and habitat projects. And that's 
that's what we do. We're a, we're a funding facilitator. We we go shake the bushes among sportsmen that are, are interested and passionate about sheep hunting, and they step up to the plate. They buy auction tags, conservation tags, permits, um, just straight up give money for funding uh, trap and transfers, establishing new populations, reintroducing new populations, uh, doing, you know, water projects uh, in some of the more arid areas of the West here, Utah, Nevada, New Mexico, Arizona. Water is, is key for, for all wildlife, but sheep in particular. And that's that's kind of the, the short answer there. Um, when the foundation got started, uh, some of the data that, that goes back points to a point where there was somewhere in the neighborhood of you know, 20,000 to 25,000 wild sheep uh, in North America, bighorns in particular. And, you know, that number now is up closer to 90,000. Oh, wow. Which is, you know, that's, that's a pretty dramatic recovery. And that is, that is due to the passion and commitment of sportsmen along with, you know, our agency partners and our agency partners are, you know, all of the state agencies, uh, provincial agencies and tribal agencies. And, you know, we work hand in hand with them, uh, allocating this money that we raise. And like I said, dedicating it to sheep specific programs. They certainly, you know, get their revenue from sportsmen's dollars for their elk and deer and moose and caribou and all the research and science and all that stuff. Um, but this, this infusion of cash specific for sheep is directly responsible for, you know, that reversal of fortune in putting more sheep back out there. And obviously that creates more hunting opportunity, which in turn, generates more tags which in turn generates more funding so we we call that 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 circle the wild sheep economy that, that's how it works we started off with very few tags which means very very limited opportunity now we have you know appreciably more and that just creates more opportunity for participation in funding and conservation yeah so how many <clears throat> different um I guess like subspecies of sheep are there and, and where all are they located? That's, that's a great question. So in North America, we've got four subspecies of sheep, two thin horns and two big horns. The thin horns are dolls, which are found in Alaska and uh, the upper reaches of Canada, NWT and the Yukon. And the other thin horn is a stones sheep, and they're really a restricted range uh, critter. They're only found in um, British Columbia and uh, the lower reaches of the Yukon. Then we've got two bighorn species, Rocky Mountain bighorn, which is the most widely distributed. Uh, they're found in Alberta, British Columbia, Washington, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, Oregon, um, the 
Nevada, California, Colorado. And then as you start drifting further south into some of the more arid climates, you start running into desert bighorn, which is our other bighorn species, and you'll see them in parts of New Mexico, Arizona. Um, there are bighorns in Texas. They're not desert bighorns. And then we have a fair amount of deserts in Mexico. Okay. And they're pretty much, you know, they're a Rocky Mountain West species. Um, we have been able to do some really good work in uh, South Dakota, Nebraska. Um, there are now bighorns there. That was a historic range for them. Um, but that's about as far east as you'll get with sheep range and sheep country. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I kind of know this answer, but I, I certainly want to get your opinion. But what is it? What is it about? You know, sheep hunting. You know, why is it such a, a coveted tag? Is it just because of you know the 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 limited number of them? Uh, I mean, what is it about sheep that? you know, people will pay out the nose for, uh, to try to get a tag for, you know, will you know, spend, you know, five years saving for, uh, for, for a sheep hunt. Uh, you know, why is that? That's a great, great question. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, it's a combination answer. You know, I'll do my best here. Um, I think part of it's human nature to want what you can't have or what's unobtainable. Uh, that's certainly an allure. I think the biggest thing is just where sheep live. Um, you know, it's it's some of the most rugged, beautiful backcountry on earth. Uh, they're not an easy critter to get to. Uh, you're not going to, you know, ride around on a ranch in the in a truck and, and go sheep shopping that, 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 that doesn't happen. <laughs> so there's a, a very strong, you know, physical challenge, mental component to it, which is, you know, very attractive. It is a, it is a Western big game species. Uh, I'll be honest with you. When I was growing up in Ohio, sheep, you know, that didn't even enter any of my dreams, but right. elk, oh yeah. A mule deer, oh yeah. Um, but as as folks get some opportunity in those areas, hunting some elk, hunting mule deer, getting to see this country, uh, getting to experience, you know, uh, you know, backpack hunting, you know, deep into the backcountry, into wilderness areas, seeing that country. Um, sooner or later people started going, God, you know, I'm, I'm here. It would be awesome to hunt a sheep. And, you know, to have a sheep tag in your pocket is, from personal experience, I was fortunate enough to, to draw a Montana sheep tag uh, here in 2005. And it was just different. I mean, I was, I was out there you know, hunting where there was, you know, I saw elk, I saw mule deer, I saw black bears, uh, and it was like, cool, you know, wildlife, game. But 
I got no interest in you today, fellas. I got a sheep tag. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I was expecting. I mean, I, I, I certainly have, you know, read enough and seen enough to to understand uh, the allure. I think anyone that's spent any amount, uh, any amount of time in the mountains um, kind of longs for that can't get to place that you know, the next peak over, the next peak, you know, the next peak up or whatever the case. And it's like, I wonder what's up there. You know, what lives up there? Because uh, that's, it's, it's the unknown. It's the, yeah, want what you can't have uh, that you described there. So, yeah, I mean, that's, I, I've heard of, you know, some, uh, I think, what are they, like governor tags uh, maybe in Montana that have went for some outrageous money uh, that all went right back. Uh, to like the Wild Sheep Foundation, uh, which is incredible. Yeah, there's uh, there's a couple. Well, one thing not to overlook here too is is you can credit this sheep fever to uh, you know outdoor writers like Jack O'Connor. Um, you know, in his era, there was very limited um, you know sheep hunting opportunities, but he was able to go and his his writings uh, in Outdoor Life magazine, you know, romanticizing the wilderness and the wilderness experience and, you know, the regal qualities of a mountain sheep, you know, that, that draw, that drew a lot of people to it when there wasn't much opportunity. Um, so that kind of ties into this uh, sheep thing as well. And I, and I mentioned sheep fever. It's, it's a, kind of an endearing phrase um you know it, it refers to the fact that you know once you've gone on a sheep hunt that's all you think about is <laughs> my my sheep hunt you know how am i going to do it how am i going to save up you know how am i going to save the money uh you know playing the, the odds and the draws uh, buying raffle tickets um, and then certainly you mentioned, you know, the, the auctioning of some of these tags. Yes, these, these states do, um, generously trust the Wild Sheep Foundation to market these tags for them. They're conservation permits. Sometimes they're called governor's tags. And we, uh, we auction these off at our annual bake sale, we call it, which is the sheep sheep week and sheep show it's our annual convention in reno which is coming up here again in january and uh it, it's just a sight to watch folks bidding up these tags you mentioned uh you know montana the montana tag went for four hundred and forty thousand dollars this past january oh my god i mean like i said that, that was that wasn't the record. The record's four hundred and eighty thousand, and you know you, you can imagine what that does to a state agency when that kind of money just lands in their lap and say, "Here, go make more sheep." Uh, so they're they're you know excited about that. The excitement in the room when these tags are auctioned, uh, you know. I certainly don't have the means to play at that level, but a lot of people appreciate watching the folks that do step up and, you know, this is for the opportunity to hunt one animal and not everybody's successful, but this is, this is 
this is putting something more than a little extra in the envelope of conservation when folks do this. Yeah, I mean, that's, I couldn't imagine being in a room and that type of money is floating around in terms of, you know, what people are, are bidding. I don't know if it's a, a live auction, a silent auction, however it works. But when you, when you get people that are starting to throw around, you know, half of a million dollars roughly for, you know, one single tag. And then, I mean, that in and of itself is, is crazy to think about. But then, you know, you flip the coin and now all that money gets to go back to that species that that tag was for and all the good that one person, one person's going to do uh, with with buying that tag uh, is incredible. You know, and I think it just it kind of speaks to, uh, you know, the the allure that is the sheep. It, it does. And, you know, um, there can be a downside to it. You know, there's there's some there's some angst people look at that and go oh, you know that that rich sobs you know buying these tags but what that usually gets beaten in the margins pretty quickly as soon as people realize that this person is stepping up to make more sheep and more hunting opportunities for all of us that means that there's more you know in montana here in particular this this funds you know more sheep which means more tags in the draw and you know there's still a luck of the draw there uh you know i'm joe average guy i drew a tag um yeah i was just gonna say that gives so, more opportunity for guys like you and i who don't have half a million dollars to buy a single tag but to increase yeah. our odds on a year-to-year basis of actually drawing a tag yeah, tip tip of tip of the cap to those guys and gals yeah. for going. Yeah, in, in, in a couple of years, that's going to mean you know five or six more, you know, sheep tags uh, in the draw, which improves everybody's chances. So, and it's 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 an amazing uh, economy. Um, ironically, I just we just published our annual report here a few days ago, and I just got a graphic sitting here in for our fiscal year 2019-2020 which is the one we just completed um, we put 6.2 million dollars back out on the ground for sheep this went to state agencies this went to uh, industry support international conservation we haven't talked about that yet habitat restoration, transplants, management, scientific research. Um, the seven-year total that was in this annual report is north of $32 million. So, I mean, you guys are, and, you know, wow. Well, then you just, then you step back and you go, well, you know, what, what segment of our society is putting that kind of money into one species, one resource? And, you know, yeah, the Wild Sheep Foundation, we're, we're the facilitator of it, but, you know, that money's not coming from us. It's, it's coming from sportsmen. Uh, you know, we're not writing these checks. This is a pass-through. Right. So that, they're, they're, there should be a huge pride in ownership of 
what those numbers represent and what that means on the ground for wild sheep in particular. And you mentioned, you know, the Elk Foundation, the Mule Deer Foundation, you know, Ducks Unlimited, Wild Turkey Federation, uh, National Deer Alliance, you know, all these critter groups are doing the exact same thing for their pet, their pet critter. And that's, you know, we, we oftentimes sit here and maybe not often enough think about, well, what if hunting went away? Well, who's stepping up to do this? Nobody. Yeah. So this, this is an important point not to overlook of the larger conservation landscape. Uh, there may be some folks out there that <clears throat> don't like how this goes and don't understand or don't appreciate or just ardently against hunting. Um, you know, that, that, that's a personal choice, certainly, but you, you study the history, you peel back the onion, the, the wildlife that we have and the open spaces and the public land and the public access and... You know, all of that is tied back to what we know is the North American model of wildlife conservation that benefits all citizens. And that's all tied back to sportsmen. And that's that's a, a bit of history that's buried, unfortunately, uh, that shouldn't be. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think it's uh, it's unfortunate that a lot of people, but I think, you know, part of me thinks that's just kind of the way society is the, I, anymore these days is they don't, they don't want to research anything. They just want to make snap judgments uh, without knowing the entire story on whatever the issue or situation is. And, you know, hunting is, is exactly one of those is people just see killing animals, right? And they think it's really to the detriment of that species when it's, you know, the complete opposite. You know, it's it's for a reason. It's to manage herds and numbers, um, you know, try to mitigate the spread of disease, you know, whatever. the. There's so many reasons why hunting is conservation and why it's so important, you know, from uh, a, a population uh, control or, you know, trying to, to manage that to, you know, the money raised for research for for diseases, you know, for you know, to, to uh, open up, you know, migration corridors for certain species, uh, to reintroduce animals or species into uh, different locations where maybe they uh, were once present and, you know, had, whether the herd moved on or died off or whatever it is, but the, it has the, the ecosystem to support, you know, whatever that species is. There's, it, there's just so much more than, oh, we just kill animals because, you know, either we like it or we like the trophy on our wall. Uh, I mean, it's so, so much more than that. You know, it, it is. I mean, it's, I guess it's, it's human nature to, you know, attack things that you don't understand or, or, you know, aren't part of. Um, and we certainly see enough of that. Um, but the, the, the reality is, is we're long past the day where nature takes care of itself, even, even in pristine wildernesses. Which you know, people think, well, that this is, you know, let's let's lock everything up, get man off out of there, and nature will take its course. Even in those areas, there's a level of management needed. Um, you look at some of our national parks where there, there is no hunting, which is fine. Um, you know, they can have and do have 
you know, wildlife overpopulation problems, uh, human conflicts. You know, we've got, you know, grizzly bears attacking people in Yellowstone. Uh, now they're out of Yellowstone. They're they're scattered over the, the Rocky Mountain West here. Um, we're having problems with them. We're having problems with wolves and wolf reintroductions, and there's people fighting that. And there's you know organized efforts that are fundraising off of that. You know, save the last wolf from the the white trophy hunter. And you know, it's it's it. You kind of shake your head, but at, at the end of the day, um, you know we're we're talking about shared landscape here. People aren't going away. In fact, our numbers are increasing. And so the, the need for conservation, the need for active management is only escalating. Uh, th- this idea that, that we can just, uh, you know, remove people from the landscape and, and let it go back to nature, you know, air quotes, uh, that's a dis- disastrous ideology. Um, that, that's not going to serve people or wildlife in, in the long run. Yeah, no, I agree. So what is, I guess, the the biggest issue uh, facing uh, sheep right now, whether it's disease, uh, not enough, uh, you know, area where that they can uh, live at? I mean, what, what do you guys see? Well, you, you touched on a big one, um, disease. Um, there is a situation where uh, it's called Hemobi, and that is a disease that is passed from domestic sheep onto wild sheep, of which wild sheep have no immunity for. And as, as good as we are at the science of putting sheep on the mountain, it's keeping sheep on the mountain. That's, that's our challenge. So we're having to, you know, we're investing a lot in research there to figure out, you know, is is there is there a way to, you know, immunize sheep against this? Um, the most successful thing we have right now is, is separation. Where can we find those habitats where we can still have domestic sheep, but they're far enough away from a wild sheep population that there's not going to be a, a co-mingling. If, if one young ram decides to come down off the hill and go, hey, those look like girls down there, and he goes wandering a wild sheep or a domestic sheep herd, and he picks up this, uh, this amovi and brings it back to his own kind, uh, it can go through and just wipe out that herd. Um, it affects the lambs and lamb recruitment uh, the most. They're the hardest hit. You can have a successful breeding season and you know a pile of new lambs in the spring, and by fall they're gone. They, they just don't make it. It's a. It affects their respiratory system. The amovi itself doesn't kill the sheep but it weakens their immune system to the point where they're susceptible to pneumonia. And, and that's that. And you get a year in and year out effect. It has what they call a hollowing out effect on that herd where there's no, there's no young sheep coming up to replace the older ones that pass on. 
so that that is a big challenge and and then you know just finding suitable habitat that now we know needs to be at a fair distance uh, from domestic sheep and what can we do to still have a um, you know commercial wool industry which is important um, and, and so find those areas and so there's a you know, there's there's a movement afoot there to kind of solve that puzzle. Um, let's say, okay, we've got sheep grazing over here, we've got cattle grazing over here. Can we move the cattle grazing over to where the sheep are because the sheep are in a place that's closer to bighorn habitat? Move the sheep a little further away and, and create that buffer zone. So that's that's a challenge. Uh, and probably the, the largest challenge. Um, predation on sheep is, is just like with all wildlife, um, is, is also a challenge. You know, cats uh, in particular, uh, now wolves, uh, they, can, they can put the herd on a sheep herd, uh, especially when, you know, they're no, low numbers to start with and, and any loss is is a tough one um so that that becomes a you know a challenge as well you know how do we best manage uh you know a predator species along with its prey keep that in in balance um and then there's just you know even though i, I threw out a big number 6.2 million in one year uh, that money goes away fast. Um, we can always use more. It's, it's, it's on a continuum. Uh, if you look at a heat map, which we have up on our website of, you know, the, the sheep distribution and, and population in like 1850 and then look at it again in 1950 and look at it again now, there's market improvement, but there's still lots of places where sheep historically range that they're completely absent still and it's and it's not just for sportsmen sheep are uh you know they're just a an interesting critter there's a lot of folks that belong to our organization that are members that aren't sheep hunters they they get it they understand that you know the taking of one animal can be to the betterment of an entire population um but people love seeing sheep I mean, there's, you know, eco tours for sheep viewing and, uh, it's, it's just cool to see wild sheep being wild sheep and doing what they do and button heads and, you know, all the things that they do. It's, it's a, it's a wildlife conservation success story. And, you know, a lot of people benefit just knowing that there's wild sheep up on those hills. Um, it's it's somewhat comforting i guess to know that we still have those wild places where in a a keystone species like a, a sheep can make a living and thrive and they're still here and they're still with us and we we haven't we haven't you know overridden them through our own uh, you know, development our own 
you know, human enterprise. Yeah. So how is it that like the Wild Sheep Foundation uh, is working with like biologists or, uh, you know, local uh, game agencies or anything like that to, uh, I guess, make recommendations uh, or, you know, how, you know, that money is, is like you said, being funneled uh, to these, um, you know, agencies and things like that. So how does that work? That's a, that's a great question. Um, we have three staff biologists on our staff. They're all retired uh, state agency biologists. So they know how the system works. They know the people. They know where the challenges are. They know where the landmines are. And so they guide us uh, quite a bit in, in working directly. They, they speak the lingo. They know the people. So there's, there's a lot of close interaction and collaboration between our staff and agency staff. Um, we also have a, a grant and aid program where we, we put out solicitations for grant requests. And so these projects come to us and these are people seeking funding. They have a, an idea or they have a project or they've got a specific thing that they feel is going to benefit wild sheep and they'll come to us asking for funding. Uh, our science guys, if you will, uh, you know, go through and, 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 and study those projects and allocate funding uh, directly to those projects. A lot of it is research. We already talked about a Moby. Um, there's a lot of research being done now on sheep grass and, and native, native grasses, uh, the, the types of things that, that sheep need to make a living. Um, so a, a fair amount goes into research, um, you know, getting back to the North American model, you know, wildlife managed and, and allocated by science. That's, that's critical. Uh, we can't just run around and go, well, we'd like it to be this way or, uh, you, you can't manage uh, complex species like sheep in a complex ecosystem based on opinion and conjecture. There, there's got to be sound science behind it that says this is this is what needs to be done, and we need to move these chess pieces around the board to make it happen. Yeah, and we're we're very close. we're very close with these agencies, um, and like I said, state, provincial, tribal. Um, a lot of collaboration, a lot of summits, a lot of meetings today or in, in today's world, lots of zoom calls, um, you know, trying to, you know, sort this thing out and, and make sure that, you know, the successes that we've had, uh, you know, continue and we build on those successes. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> how is it, or I guess, you know, kind of talking about the, the allocation or, or funding, uh, you know, for, for research projects and things like that. Do you guys have anything kind of in the works for maybe, I mean, I know these projects are not something that is, you know, two or three months and it's done, right? It's, it's done over a, a period of time to collect the, you know, the right data, uh, you know, at the right times. So do you guys have anything uh, from a project standpoint that you're working on that maybe is a year out or two years out that you're uh, excited about or that, you know, you've been putting a lot of effort into? Uh, well, we've kind of already touched on those, you know, there's, there's a lot being thrown at this Amovi separation, uh, situation. We've got a new deal 
if you will, that is is uh, proving highly successful. It, it's called uh, test and remove, uh, where we're going in and you know net capturing sheep, testing them for a movie, and we're able to now identify what we call chronic shedders, which are adult sheep that have a movie. They're not dying from it, but they're passing it on, like I mentioned, year in and year out to the lambs. We identify that that individual in a herd, and we remove them. Okay. And so that that has proven to be one of you know it's sad as it sounds that we we've got to euthanize a sheep when you know every animal is important. Uh, but we're saving, you know, countless others by doing it. Yeah. So, so it's almost like that sheep is a carrier for Emovi and it's just, it, uh, yeah, there, it's, it's not affecting that, but it is everyone else that it comes in contact with. Yeah. And, you know, sheep are very social animals. There's a lot of, you know, nose to nose, physical contact, Emovi spread by, you know, body fluids and feces and, and all that. So, you know, sheep travel in, in herds and bands. Once once a movie gets in there, and if you've got a chronic shedder in the in the mix, yeah, it's game over. You, you got to get that got to get that individual out of there. So that's been very exciting research to see and and to see the results. Um, this started a fair amount in Idaho and Hell's Canyon. Uh, they've been able to do wonderful things there. And now that same model is being transported to other states, Oregon, Washington in particular. And uh, that's, that's exciting uh, because before that, we're just sitting here watching sheep die or sitting on our hands feeling helpless. Uh, and now, now we've got a tool at our disposal. Now it's expensive. I mean, certainly you start thinking about putting helicopters up in the air and, you know, netting individual animals, testing them, collaring them, uh, you know, that, that racks up a bill pretty quickly. Uh, but it's good work and it's proven to be effective. So I'd say that's the most exciting thing. And there, there's other things that aren't quite as sexy, uh, you know, walking um, you know, prescribed burns, uh, going in and, and, you know, thinning out, uh, overgrown, uh, habitat where the, the sheep don't have good escape cover. Um, that's proven to be really effective in areas where we've got, you know, too many predators. Uh, if it's overgrown and predators have a much easier time getting at the sheep. Uh, so we just did a project here in, in uh, South Dakota this year where a whole crew went in with chainsaws and, you know, thinned out an area that, that, you know, opened it back up so the sheep can see danger coming from a much further away than they used to. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's all great, especially, uh, kind of with the, the recent development, um, of, you know, trying to, um, you know, euthanize, uh, you know, maybe one specific sheep for the betterment of the herd and, and finding success in that and then seeing that spread uh, to other states um, where the disease is prevalent as well. I mean, yeah, those are the things, those are the victories uh, that, 
you know, as an organization, a foundation that you can really, you know, hang your hat on uh, because you know that uh, the outcome is positive all the way around. Yeah, there, there was there was a time not too long ago here, like I said, we're, we're just sitting back watching sheep die and going, uh, okay, that, that's enough. Yeah, what uh, we got to do something was, different here. Yeah, yeah, and that's, you know, and that, that has a domino effect. Uh, you know, we do have state agency partners that are, you know, on board with, you know, establishing new herds and new populations, but are at the same time, and rightfully so, risk averse in moving sheep that have a Moby to a new area. So finding a disease-free herd is important. Uh, and then, you know, certainly taking disease-free sheep and establishing a herd that's too close to a domestic grazing area well, that's a kill shot. So, yeah. What kind of buffer? What kind of distance are you trying to, uh, I guess, implement when you're, you know, reintroducing, um, you know, a new herd uh, to try to get it away from uh, a domestic herd? Well, the, the the smart guys are telling me, you know, nine to thirteen miles is is a is a proven buffer. Um, but that also varies depending on the on the terrain and, and the habitat. Some sheep country is, is obviously you know, sheer rock, and you know, just there ain't nothing living up there but sheep. Yeah. Uh, if there's other sheep habitat that is is you know lower elevation, uh, where the domestic sheep can graze right up to them, and if they're not grazing right up to them. Like I said, those those younger rams with wanderlust, they they start <laughs> down into the valley. Yeah, I can. Yeah, I was just kind of curious, uh, you know, how far those sheep would travel, or what they felt was a was a safe distance to to try reintroduction. Um, yeah, and you'd think, oh, oh boy, there there must be all kinds of places where we can come up with you know nine to you know thirteen miles of you know radius. There's just not. Um, you know, we've got domestic sheep producers with you know, you know, huge herds, and then there's a lot of what we call hobby farmers that you know have a small herd themselves, and they, you know, they shear wool and you know do their thing. So, and and the, the, the hobby component is you know, much more fragmented. You know, they're all over the place. So. It is it is challenging to, to find those safe zones. Yeah. So just a few more things here, Keith, before I let you go. I just kind of looked at the clock here and realized that we've already been going for an hour. But for someone who wants to get involved with Wild Sheep Foundation, uh, you know, what's you know, even if they uh, they don't live in an area uh, where sheep hunting uh, is is even an option, you know, how uh, how can someone get involved uh, with the foundation? Well, that's, that's, that's a great question. You know, we, we have a, you know, a membership level, you know, for everybody, uh, our, um, you know, annual memberships only $45. Um, you can join online at wildsheepfoundation.org. Um, there's obviously other, other levels, life member and, and, and on up. 
Um, you get our magazine, Wild Sheep, four times a year, quarterly. Uh, you get all our, you know, communications and e-blasts and newsletters and, and all that stuff that not only talks about sheep, but, you know, Western big game hunting, mountain game hunting in, in, in general. Uh, a lot of folks come to our convention every year. It's in January. This year it will be January 13 through 15 in Reno. Um, that's a, a gathering of mountain game hunters, uh, the companies that service them. It's, it's a convention. It's an expo. Last year, uh, it was a COVID casualty. We did not have that. We, we pivoted and did a virtual event. Uh, that was hugely successful. It was a, a total immersion, you know, get online and, and walk through exhibit halls and watch live seminars and streaming and had gamification to it. And, and you know, it was really a, an experiment on our part to the point where it made us realize that there was a lot of people interested in Western big game hunting, sheep hunting, certainly, but, you know, elk hunting, moose hunting, mule deer hunting, et cetera. Uh, they just can't make the trip to Reno. Bad timing for them or, you know, whatever the case may be, kids in school uh, that are, were able to join us virtually. And so this year we're offering a hybrid show that we are having the in-person live event in Reno, but we're also offering the same thing virtually online. So it's if you can't can't make it the sheep show, we'll bring the sheep show to you. Nice. No, that's yeah. there's certainly some uh, some good that has come out of uh, you know a lot of these events having to be canceled, and that is just for a lot of these orgs to, uh, like you just said, pivot, um, try something new, and have you know found some success in that, and, and have really kind of like you just said uh, opened it up to to people that you know would love to come, but just you know don't have the ability to at that given time. Well, and you also remember, you know, mentioned membership, uh, you know, all organizations have you know, benefits of membership and certainly being a, a part of something that's, that's making a positive change and being around uh, like-minded people is, is an important part of membership. One thing we do do is we give away sheep hunts. Um, we have a uh, program called the Less Than One Club, which means that if you've never harvested a wild ram uh, for a $25 membership, you're in the running to draw one of six sheep hunts. Oh, wow. We raffle sheep. Uh, obviously, we mentioned about auctioning, but we do raffles. I think we've got uh, four or six sheep hunts in the raffle. Um, so a lot of people come to the sheep show or tuck in online, open to for lightning to strike and walk out of there with a sheep hunt or a moose hunt or an elk hunt or, you know, what have you. So, um, that's another benefit of membership. Um, that's why the lesson one club was created is, you know, we're all about opportunity. Certainly we're, we're trying to enhance wild sheep populations so that there's more opportunity, more tags, more funding. We already talked about that, but how do you, how do you get more people sheep hunting? Well, give away some sheep hunts. 
and we've got some very generous donors um, that underwrite these hunts. And, and obviously they're coming from, you know, either state agencies or uh, our guide and outfitter partners. They're donating hunts. Uh, they're wanting to get more people interested and involved in sheep hunting. So uh, that's another big drawing card why people join Wild Sheep Foundation is this, this is where sheep hunting is going on. This, this is where, you know, opportunity and, 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 and tags are happening. So, and that's kind of cool to see. Uh, you, you watch somebody's name get called. And, and they come flying up on stage doing cartwheels and fist pumping and you know, like. I mean, that's as close to hitting the lottery without actually hitting the lottery that you know people are, are you know, hunters specifically are ever going to get. Yeah, that's that's a good one. I didn't think of it that way, but yeah, that's that is hitting the lottery. Yeah. Well, one more thing here, Keith. Before I let you go, I know, especially in the West, there we're you know I think you, you, you were pretty well into seasons, but, uh, any hunts that you've had this year or hunts that you have left this year that you're excited about? <laughs> well, unfortunately I have not stepped into the field yet. Uh, I got archery elk fever here a few years ago and I've been put in for a special tag, a special draw tag over in Montana. And I did not draw it this year so i was on suicide watch for about three months <laughs> my buddies did draw and they, they went and had a great hunt and killed a couple of bulls so my uh, my kick at the cats coming up here i've got an archery whitetail hunt uh coming up in november here in montana and then uh, i've got uh, another hunt coming up in december with a, a group of folks that i Buddies that I've hunted with for a number of years, we're going to do another little archery uh, excursion into uh, Mexico. Okay, I'm really looking forward. After and some no, I'm not sheep. I'm not sheep hunting this year. I did not draw a tag. Well, no, uh, it, it all. It's unfortunate, obviously, that you didn't draw your unit. But uh, you know, for someone who probably kind of cut their teeth uh, big game hunting with whitetail, I'm sure that. Uh, That'll be an enjoyable one there, even though it is November in Montana. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's interesting. We talked about growing up in Ohio and, and all of that. I fall back to whitetail hunting as, as my de facto critter. I, I just, it's in my blood. I love doing it. Uh, we've got some great opportunities. A lot of people don't think of Montana as a whitetail state. You know, people want come here to hunt mule deer and elk and understandably so, but we, we've got some fabulous white tail hunting out here. Nice. Well, I wish you the best of luck on that. Uh, certainly something to look forward to. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I've been shooting and shooting and shooting. So I'm, I'm as dialed as I can get. Yeah. Time to, time to send one at something other than foam. No, I, uh, I certainly, I'm looking for the looking forward to the rut here in Michigan, which is you know probably a week and a half away, I would say. But we're we're starting to knock on the door, so I'm getting antsy myself. Right on. Well, enjoy. Yeah, yeah. Well, 
Keith, thank you again for taking some time today. Uh, I really enjoyed hearing more about the, you know, the Wild Sheep Foundation, you know, all the work that you guys are doing and, you know, a lot of the successes from, uh, you know, bringing the sheep population from where it was at, you know, um, you know, 60, 70 years ago to where it's at now. And, you know, just the, the continued success of the species in general uh, was really cool to hear about. And uh, hopefully uh, as time goes on here, we can get you back on and, and hear some more uh good stories anytime marcus i really appreciate the the platform and you sharing this with your folks and uh yeah happy to jump back on at any time awesome well good luck on those hunts keith and uh we'll talk to you soon all right thank you marcus all right all right well thank you again to keith uh for joining me on the podcast today uh, i would also like to thank the partners of the podcast wild rivers coffee go hunt Stone Glacier, as well as 2% for Conservation. And if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And over there, you can see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you guys to follow 2% on social media, where it's going to be only positive conservation-driven content that uh, they'll be pumping into your feed, so you'll certainly enjoy that. Uh, So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for joining me this week, everyone. I hope you guys enjoyed Conservation Month here on the podcast. Uh, Stay tuned next week uh, where we get to kind of change things up a little bit and talk northeast waterfowl hunting. So, as always, stay safe out there, and remember that conservation starts with you. 